0: Well, good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Matthew chapter 28, if you would. And while you're turning there, I just want to say, again, thank you uh, very much for the opportunity to be here for this conference. It's uh, always a blessing whenever I've been here to Colonial and uh, Virginia Beach Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, It was a real joy to be able to spend some time. You know, there uh, Eric and Kirk Leonard and Tom Daly, and actually, in fact, uh, Pastor Brent, I've had the opportunity to actually be uh, they're a professor for classes, so it was great to be able to uh, to spend time with them and, and encouraging. And uh, so it's always a joy to be able to spend some time with some younger guys in ministry. And then being able to hang out with Daniel Davey and J.D. to st- spend some time with some older guys in ministry, too. Uh, guys that, that I've looked up to for all these years. And uh, certainly a, a blessing. Uh, J.D., I mentioned Friday night, I think I did, or Friday maybe. Uh, J.D. and I last year were involved in a, a missions conference in February and this year, so I told him on the way over this morning, we need to figure out where we're going to be next year, uh, because it is, uh, it just, you know, the, the text at the end of 1 Corinthians about Paul said there were folks who refreshed his spirit, and uh, and being around J.D. Crawley is one of those refreshing things for me. So we're doing sort of Great Commission 101. That's what my sessions have been Friday night, Saturday morning, and this morning. Uh, really looking at basic truth from the mission that Jesus entrusted to the church. If we were going to do the full deal, uh, it would take a lot more than three sessions and and uh, would would walk through it in that way. But what I'm trying to do is hit what I think are three very important parts of it. The first on Friday night was in verse 18 of the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so we talked about Christ's authority being our authorization. We have permission from the Lord of heaven and earth to go anywhere and everywhere for the sake of his name. And so, There are no political or spiritual powers that can rightfully tell us no, because Jesus has told us go. And not only that, but we can go out with confidence, because Jesus is not some beggarly uh, figure, but is actually the one who has authority over all flesh. And he is able to grant eternal life. And so we can go out in confidence that Jesus will call people. He said so in John 10:16: Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold, them must I also bring, and they will hear my voice. And so when we go out on behalf of Jesus Christ, we actually are, as Paul said, remember. As an ambassador of Christ, I beseech you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. In in really a profound and powerful, genuinely miraculous work, because regeneration is that, that when a human instrument stands and proclaims the gospel, it is in fact the voice of Jesus Christ that issues a call which brings them out of death to life. And it's, it's his work. And we are simply his spokespeople. We're, we're sent out to represent him and proclaim the gospel. And so yesterday morning, we focused on the fact that that is actually the mission. If you look in verse 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, that we are called uh, to a task of making disciples by calling people to become followers of Jesus Christ through faith in his person and work. And and that call, ours is the invitation, God's is the sovereign work to give life, actually produces a conversion, that they are turned from uh, darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. Or as I referred to a couple times yesterday, 1 Thessalonians 1, They turn from serving dead idols uh, to worship and serving the living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That God calls people to become followers of Jesus Christ. They are worshipers of the Lamb because they, they have come to believe what we have been singing about this morning, that he's the Savior who's rescued us. And because he died for us, Paul says, when the love of God, love of Christ constrains us, we come to this conclusion that if he died for us, then we ought to live for him. And that's the message that we proclaim, that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior, that he is the lone mediator between God and men, that even as he himself said, he is the way, the truth, and the life, No one comes to the Father but through Him. And and it would be, I think, a a glaring mistake on my part uh, as we talk about the mission of Jesus Christ not to make certain that we all understand that this morning, right? That that I, I hope you are here realizing that there is no other way to be right with God than through Jesus Christ that his righteousness can be credited to your account by faith and that your sins, your your condemnation was taken by Christ on the cross and and that, that penalty that he paid can be yours if you're joined to him by faith so that his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection. And that is not on any basis of righteousness that we have. There's no religious ritual that ever could achieve that because the very effort to achieve it would not actually earn favor with God but actually incur greater condemnation. Because at the heart of man's sin is a desire to take the glory that only he deserves. And if I think one day that I'll stand before God and present an offering of my righteousness as a way to satisfy him, I would essentially be saying, God, look at what I've done. Haven't I been good? That's why the scriptures say it's it's by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The only boasting That anyone can ever rightly and properly would be is in the Lord and in his mercy and in his grace to us through Jesus Christ. That he is the substitute for sinners and he offers life in his name. And I hope this morning that you know him. That you have a confidence in your soul, not built on anything in you, but in the full and sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he has ascended the right hand of God the Father and there anyone who comes to God through him he is able to save completely and friend if you know that message how can we not share that message how can we not be burdened to go to the ends of the earth and announce that Jesus Jesus is the way the truth and the life and that's the mission We're called to make disciples by calling people to become followers of him through faith, trust in his person and work. I would like to uh, now unpack something that I've alluded to in the previous two sessions, and that is that I believe in this passage of Scripture, it is necessary to draw the conclusion that Jesus was actually teaching that it's not just the salvation of individual souls that is the mission. It's not just that we're running a rescue uh, mission to gather up as many individuals as individuals all over the globe. But that in fact, Jesus' intention was that when we would call people to become Followers of Jesus Christ, we, we see them become disciples of Christ, that they actually would be gathered into assemblies so that they might be taught to observe all that he commanded. Because if, if you set it really inside the big picture of what God's doing, Romans 8 says that the goal of salvation is not just to populate heaven. It says, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God doesn't save us just to get us to heaven. He actually saves us to make us like His Son. And that's why this commission includes these statements that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That there is something more than just the task of evangelism in this text. And in fact, there's something more than just personal discipleship. That there actually is an objective to the Great Commission that if I could say it this way, and, and it Hopefully, it isn't too provocative, but it's intended to sort of maybe stick in your brain a little bit, all right? That the target of the Great Commission is churches planted, not just converts won. That, that the mission of Jesus Christ always has to be seen in relationship to his purpose with regard to the church, And again, I think you know this, right? Ephesians chapter 5, familiar passage. And it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, the the tendency, and it's it's partly our culture, is sort of a radically individualistic culture. And so we are very inclined to think that this whole enterprise is about Jesus and me. And it's right to say Jesus died for me. Paul says that in Galatians 2.20, right? That he, he died for me. And so I would not want to exclude that. But, but you don't hear often about the fact that Jesus died for the church. That like Ephesians 2, if you follow the, the, the flow of Paul's thought, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is about what he does for dead sinners to make them alive. But at at verse 11, he all of a sudden starts to talk about a group of people who were alienated from the promises of God, cut off, and now he has made them one new man. And they all have access to God by the Spirit and have become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We bask in verses 1 through 10 and just blow by 11 through 22 because we're so radically individualistic in our culture that we forget that God saved us to bring us into fellowship with him and the body of Christ. And Jesus' mission actually is designed to take that into account. And so what I'm going to do, and this is, I mean, you're just going to have to buckle up your seats. I mean, we're going to fly, right? Uh, because I'm not at home, so I'm going to try and respect time boundaries. All right, and and JD has an awesome message in the next session that you really need to hear, and so I don't want to chew into it. So I hope you'll 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 work with me. All right, we're going to just we're going to move really quickly through a series of passages. We're just going to look at a number of passages to try and prove that point that the real target of the Great Commission is churches planted, not just converts one. And the first place we're going to go is actually backward. Go to Matthew chapter 16, please, if you would. I want to treat this almost like a sword drill. You you remember when you were a kid, you had to turn the passage really fast? I'm not going to ask you to stand up when you found it, though, all right? But, But if you could, and after about four seconds, if you haven't found it, just stop and I'll read it and you can act like you found it, all right? We're good. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, This is about halfway through Jesus' earthly ministry. And he has a conversation with the disciples that we'll pick up in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let me just stop right there. That's exactly what I was talking about. when, When God works through the word to open the eyes of someone's understanding. Jesus says, Peter, you didn't get this from flesh and blood. It's my father who revealed this to you. He's the one who gave you this understanding because he worked in your heart to do that. Then look at, look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look at that phrase, I will build my church. You know what we're going to do? I'm going to just skip the entire year of This Rock, and he can take care of it later on, all right? So we're just put that one right aside. I just want us to look at that phrase, I will build my church. And the first thing I want you to notice is he says, I will build my church, okay? He's not saying, I have built my church. He's not saying, I am building my church. He says, I will build my church. This is halfway through his earthly ministry, and Jesus introduces three things for the first time with clarity. This is the first mention of the word church. In just a few verses, if you're familiar with it, he's gonna talk about the fact that he's gonna go to Jerusalem and he's gonna die. And, And Peter's so shocked by that that he pulls him aside and says, far be it from you, Lord. And that text tells us in verse 21, from that time Jesus began... To show his disciples that this was going to happen? You know, sometimes we grow up thinking that Jesus, you know, his opening message from, from the moment after the wilderness was, I'm going to be crucified. This is 18 months, halfway through his earthly ministry, and he says he began to tell them. Right now, there were allusions to it. Remember John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, Tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. But if you remember the Gospel of John, it says he said this concerning his body, but his disciples didn't get it until after the resurrection. So it's not until this point, for instance, in the book of Matthew, after the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, after the determination to kill him and the rejection of him, that he begins to declare, I'm going to die. So he mentions the church, he mentions his death and resurrection. At the end of this chapter, he mentions his second coming. So so now he starts talking about that he's going to return again. Now he says them in that order, church, death, return. But I would suggest to you if we put them in chronological order, it would actually go like this. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I will build my church and I will return, that what he's actually now beginning to do is lay out for the disciples that things are going to be a little different than they expected, that there is going to be a time between his death and his coming in glory, and during that time, they're going to be doing something, which he now commissions them to do in verse twenty-eight or chapter 28. What I think if we read Matthew and we think through what's going on here, Matthew 28 is actually declaring to the disciples how Jesus will build his church. You go make disciples. In fact, the apostles, I think, understood that. For instance, we'll look at a passage, but in Romans 15, Paul says, I will boast of nothing except for what Christ has done. He knew that it was Jesus who was doing what was happening. And so in between the first and second coming, the Great Commission is the means by which Jesus is building his church. All right, now let me ask you to Acts chapter 2, please. And we're going to look at a few passages in Acts, because what we're doing, if I were going to give you sort of the lines of argument, we looked at the content of the Great Commission, baptizing, which is an ordinance of the local church, the ongoing teaching of the ministry of teaching in the church, the gifts, both office and function. That's the content of the Great Commission. The backdrop of the Great Commission is Matthew 16. Now we'll look at the implementation of the Great Commission in the book of Acts. And start, if you would, in Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 41. Peter preaches the message on the day of Pentecost. In 2.41 it says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then if you go down to verse 47, it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, so here, I think we have to understand it this way. Peter begins to do what Jesus commissioned them to do. And so they preach the gospel. People believe it. That is, they become disciples, followers of Jesus Christ through faith in his person and work. And the first thing that happens is they're baptized. And then they commit themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the great commission. Make disciples, baptizing them teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And it's stated in terms of being added to the number of the disciples, the church at Jerusalem. Go up to Acts chapter 11, please. Acts chapter 11. Because here we see the gospel begin to spread uh, more fully, directly among the Gentiles. Start in verse 19, please. they sent Barnabas to Antioch and then dropped down just for sake of time to, to verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. All right, let me just stop. I mean, again, we're doing like 35,000 feet uh, overview of it, right? Gospel goes, they preached the Lord Jesus. People believe those people are called disciples down in verse 26, right? They made disciples and they gather them into an assembly, the church, the congregation, and they're teaching them. In fact, even the text says the hand of the Lord was with them. You know what part of the Great Commission that is? Verse 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The only thing not explicitly mentioned here is baptizing. And I think this is a case in which, because of all the other things that we see happening in Acts, I think it's fair for us to assume it, but I think I need to admit that, right? It's not present in terms of this passage. But you have making disciples, you have teaching them to observe and do what the Lord said. The Lord is present with them. They're actually forming an assembly, the church at Antioch. Jump over two chapters to chapter 13 and and look at verse 1. And I'm going to do an ellipsis that skips all of these names, all right? Now, there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, dot, dot, dot. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. All right, notice in verse 1, it's the church at Antioch. And from there launches the first missionary journey, Saul and Barnabas. Now, if you would turn over to chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. 14, 21 through 23. They're on the, the missionary journey, and they just here's the description of what's going on. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And this is a classic missions text. Uh, in which it talks about evangelizing in verse 21, the edifying of the saints in 22, and the establishing of churches and leadership in 23. I think it's fair to say, though, important to say, verse 21 is actually in a different city than verses 22 and 23, so it's not actually uh, like a consecutive process, but it's showing exactly what they were doing. They were going and preaching the gospel, which resulted in making disciples... They were then strengthening the souls of those disciples, teaching them to persevere and follow Christ because they hadn't entered the kingdom yet. It says, through much tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom. So the kingdom was in front of them still, and so they were to wait for his son from heaven, who will rescue them from the wrath to come. And, And so they were teaching them what it meant to live by faith and follow Jesus Christ. And they had organized, and it's necessary to see this, right? They were already organized into churches when they returned to those churches to help them establish spiritual leadership. So on the first wave, when disciples were made, they were congregated into assemblies because that's what they were out doing. That's what Jesus had told them to do, right? They were being formed together in that. So what we see them doing in the book of Acts is not just running evangelistic campaigns to gather as many professions of faith as they can. They were actually calling people to become followers of Christ and the, the genuineness of that profession and following would be exhibited in the ongoing obedience to the word of God as it was being taught to them as they gathered each Lord's Day to worship God through Jesus Christ. And, and that was the mission that they were pursuing. Right, let's, let's look at this from a different angle. Let me ask you to 1 Corinthians chapter three. 1 Corinthians chapter three. And know, I'm stepping into ground you've covered recently, and I think with someone writing his doctoral dissertation on it. So, so uh, I think we'll be safe, all right? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and here what we're going to do is Paul actually describing his ministry at Corinth. So that's what you need to understand. He's doing it in the context of conflict and division in the church, but what he's doing is describing his ministry and also the ministry of Apollos at the church with, with statements about the nature of gospel servants and what God is doing and therefore how they ought to serve him, right? That's sort of the context of it. Now pick it up in verse 5. In verse, I'm sorry, verse 6. Of cha- it is verse 5. I was looking at chapter 2. I'm going too fast, all right? Here we go. 3, 5. According to the grace of God given to me, like a, y, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. All right, so Now let's stop. And, and here, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, challenge, I think, what is sometimes a common understanding of this passage that takes the illustration that Paul uses of planting and watering and God giving the increase and applying it to the task of evangelism. That, that, that Paul's saying, I planted the seed of the gospel, polished water, but it was God that gave an increase with regard to evangelism. I would suggest that's a great metaphor, but it's not the point of the metaphor in this passage. That, if you want that one, go to John chapter four, where Jesus talks about to the disciples, you're gonna enter into a harvest, which you didn't sow. The thing that Paul is saying he planted here was actually the church at Corinth. And Apollos watered it, but it's God who's giving the growth. And the reason I say that is because if it really means I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but then you get you came to Christ by virtue of God. He's saying plant, water, harvest. That would mean no one at Corinth came to Christ under Paul's ministry. And the very next chapter he says you have only one father through the gospel, right? They all came, the, the people he's writing to came to Christ through his ministry. As well, if you look at the book of Acts, you know what happened? Paul was at Corinth, he left, guess who shows up? Apollos. And he strengthens the believers and preaches to them, but the reality of is whether Paul was ministering or Apollos was, it was God doing that. And the key to understanding it is actually at the end of verse nine, right? Their problem is they're all hung up on Paul and Apollos and, and Paul's trying to get them to see God, right? All we are is God's fellow workers But then he talks to them and says, you are God's field, God's building. And so think about what's happening here, right? You are God's field. What happens in a field? You plant and you water and a harvest comes. What happens in a building? You lay a foundation and other people build on it. And that's exactly what verse 10 says. Right? As a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and others are building on it. Because the you here is second person plural. You know, in English, right, I can say you and be pointing to an individual, or I can say you and be talking to you. Right? This you is the you, you, the church of Corinth, you're God's field. All I did was plant it. Apollos watered it, but it was God who who brought it into existence in the harvest. And I was just a foundation layer, and others are building on it. But it's actually, and if I kept reading, you'd see he comes to, but it's God's temple. Right? So what he's saying is, is that the church is the field or the building Paul planted, Paul laid a foundation. So what he's really saying about his ministry at Corinth was, is that he was a church planter. That's why we get that language. That he was a foundation layer. That's what he came to Corinth to do, was to establish that foundation upon which the building of God would continue to be built up. And now there's other people beyond Paul and Apollos who are there. And so Paul says, everyone needs to be careful how they're building on it. There's only one foundation Jesus Christ. And you want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones because there's going to come a day of accounting. Right? So he's talking about the church. He saw his mission as engaged in the establishment of local assemblies that would, would trust in Jesus and worship Jesus and follow Jesus. All right, one more passage, Romans 15, please. Here Paul is actually talking about the fulfillment of the Great Commission in a region of, of uh, according to his ministry, right? So Just to to get the flow of it, he starts talking about the fact that he had grace given to him at the end of verse 15 to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In verse 16, that's what the grace was. And then he talks in verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And then you can see there's a sort of a parenthetical. At the end of verse, or in verse 19, it picks it up and says, So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, and listen to this this language, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand this is the reason I have so often been hindered from coming to you, and listen to this now, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And then he talks about going to Jerusalem, to Rome, on to Spain. And here again, I've got to compress, but, but here's what Paul's saying, and I'm going to try and draw the map for you, right? And I need to draw it backwards so you can see it. All right, so Jerusalem would be here, And he says, from Jerusalem, as far as Illyricum, so if you picture a Mediterranean map, here's the Mediterranean, up the coast, around, through what we would call modern Turkey, Asia Minor, then you see Greece, then you got that little boot. If you push the heel of that boot back, that would be Illyricum, or modern Albania. And what Paul says, from Jerusalem, as far as Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And he says later, there's no more room for me to work in this region. Now think about that. Is Paul saying everybody in that region has come to trust in Christ? What do you think? No. In fact, we don't even have to guess because there's a little letter called 2 Thessalonians that is written to a city in here that says, not all have faith, right? So he knows there's unbelievers still there. Does he think everyone's heard the gospel? I doubt that he thought that. So what does he mean? He means that from Jerusalem around to Illyricum, he had had a strategic ministry of going into areas preaching the gospel, making disciples, seeing them follow Jesus and believers' baptism, organizing them to be taught to do whatever Jesus commanded, one implication of which is that they were to do the same thing. And once he had done that, then he moved to another area where Christ had not been named so that he wouldn't build on another's foundation. I mentioned Thessalonica. Go back to that one. Remember what he says about them? You you became an example to all the believers, and then he tells us why in verse eight. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord into all Macedonia and Achaia, modern Greece. So Thessalonica came to Christ. They were formed into an assembly. They had spiritual leadership, we know from 1 Thessalonians 5, and then they began to radiate out the word through that whole region. You know what an example of that was? Paul spent about two years in Ephesus, and while he was there, the word sounded out into all Asia, and you know one place it went? It went to a city called Colossae, that we know from the book of Colossians, Paul never was there. He says, you've never seen my face, but one of the people who had come to Christ through his ministry, Epaphras, probably had left Ephesus and gone to Colossae and had preached the gospel, and people had trusted in Jesus Christ, had been baptized and formed into an assembly of believers and were being taught what it meant to follow Jesus. That was the mission that they were engaged in. It was in the establishing of beachheads of gospel ministry that then would radiate out into the region around him. And it would result in assemblies where Christ was named. That people were coming together in the name of Jesus to worship the true and living God. That's what they were doing, right? It was focused on that because that's the thing that actually accomplishes the discipleship mandate. That's the thing that actually creates a reproducing, multiplying spread of the gospel as healthy assemblies disciple believers and then deploy them into new areas to to establish assemblies of worshipers of Jesus through the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of those who trust in him. That's what this church is. That's what's supposed to happen from this church into the region around you to the nations. That that God's plan for churches is not actually supposed to flow in a centripetal way. Everything coming into the church so that the church is just getting bigger and bigger and more uh, more full service and supply spiritual goods to people, but it's actually supposed to be centrifugal. There's supposed to be a profound launching capacity to the assembly of God's people because we realize that if people haven't heard of Jesus, they can't be saved. And we know people who haven't heard in in places and among people groups. So our heart beats to let them know that Jesus can rescue them. Whether that's some other place in the Hampton Roads or whether that's some other part of the globe, it's the same mission. It is to take the name of Jesus, call people to become his followers, have them identify with Christ through baptism, submit to his teaching in the assembly of God's people so that they can grow in grace, be equipped to do the work that Jesus wants done, and then rinse and repeat. Do it again and again and again until the name of Jesus has been broadcast around the world, and there are assemblies gathered in his name so that this morning when the sun rose and made its march around this planet, that everywhere it came up, there were people rising to praise God through his son, Jesus, in the life of the Holy Spirit who's opened their understanding that's the mission folks it must be tied to that it must advance that support that it can't treat the church like this well yeah church is good but then there's this 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 and this no it's it's the church jesus died for the church and he wants that expressed in particular times and places through the assembly of his people that has to be the thing and everything else needs to flow into it in some way or another. The closer and more direct, the better. Because the thing that Jesus is building is not a seminary. We have one. I love seminaries. But Jesus didn't say, I will build my seminary. He didn't say, I'll build my Christian camp. He didn't say, I'll build an orphanage. We started an orphanage. I'm not, I'm, I'm, listen carefully. What Jesus said was, I will build my church. And that has to be the center of the heart of the church, collectively and individually, so that we can carry out the mission of Jesus Christ until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, that it is clear, that it is is the source of our nourishment and direction. And Lord, help us to yield ourselves in glad submission to it as an expression of our reasonable spiritual worship. Thank you for this church and all that they're doing for your glory. Please strengthen them and assist them and direct them. Make your name great in this place and from this place we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.